Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you all for being with us for another edition of Political Rewind. We have a lot to talk about this morning, so I want to get right to the panel, uh, introduce them, and get started. It's Tuesdays, which means my partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is AJC senior reporter Tamar Hallerman. Uh, Tamar, uh, big doings on the beat that you have been following so closely uh, which is the special grand jury that Fannie Willis has called to look at the efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Uh, we'll talk about it in more depth, but Lindsey Graham, who's fought this thing tooth and nail, is actually testifying this morning, yes? After four and a half months, Fulton prosecutors have finally secured his testimony uh, and brought him down to the courthouse, and he's fought harder than pretty much any other witness in this investigation. It will be uh, fascinating to see his demeanor as he enters and leaves uh, the courtroom. We know we're not likely to hear anything that he talks about uh, since they've kept that uh, very quiet, the testimony very quiet, sealed. Stephen Fowler is back with us as well. He's GPB News' political reporter. Stephen, you've been uh, looking closely at the Senate runoff race, and we're really glad to have you here to talk about that with us today. I think a wise man once said, whoa, we're halfway there. And uh, that's where we are with the runoff. <laughs> we are two weeks away. Uh, the final day of voting it will be um, a w- two, two weeks from uh, today on a runoff election day. Uh, Tammy Greer, political science professor at Clark Atlanta University, is back with us. Hi, Tammy. Good to have you here. And Tammy, I have to, on a personal note, say I can only imagine what it's like as the holidays start for you and your triplets <laughs> in your house. <laughs> nice and nice and busy. Nice and busy. <laughs> well, thank you for taking the time to be with us. Um, we're also joined today by Anthony Michael Kreis, who is a professor of constitutional law at Georgia State uh, University. Um, Anthony, I'm really glad that you're here today for many reasons, one of which is we're going to uh, do a little bit deeper dive into the, um, the decision by uh, Judge Robert McBurney to essentially block Georgia's six-week heartbeat abortion law. And um, I'm glad you'll be able to help us illuminate exactly where that case stands, where it's headed. We know the state Supreme Court has it to consider now as well. But thanks for being here. I'm glad to be here. It's never a dull day in Georgia. That's for sure. Uh, Tammy... I, I'm sorry, Tamar, let me just start with um, a basic note. The uh, state appeals court has ruled uh, that Georgia can have a, a vote, an early voting day, this Saturday, two days after Thanksgiving. Secretary of State's office tried to block that, saying that state law uh, pro- forbids uh, voting after a state holiday. Uh, the Warnock campaign went to court insisting that it was legal, and um, they won in the lower court, and now the state appeals court has said, yes, the voting can go forward despite the Secretary of State's attempts to stop it. Um, the Warnock people clearly 
uh, tomorrow. I think it favors them to get this early voting day. Sure. And when we're talking about such a narrow voting window and we're talking about, uh, you know, runoff that could be decided by a very tight margin, any extra day of voting could have a real difference. Um, and it's led to what my, my colleagues, Tia Mitchell, Greg Bluestein, and Patricia Murphy wrote in the jolt this morning as a voting hodgepodge uh, for early voting. You know, it, it, it's kicking that off for us across the state because each county is doing different things, especially in terms of the options that will be available um, for the, the weekend and, and kind of coming up. Some early voting will begin in some counties today, for others this weekend and statewide on Monday. And it's really up to the voter to try and figure out um, what's available near them. Yeah, and Stephen, I, I had suggested on the show yesterday that perhaps this, as uh, Tamar says, they described it in the Joe, this hodgepodge of early voting days in various counties uh, could in fact uh, lead to voters being confused about when they can vote. Um, I was assured yesterday that the get-out-the-vote machinery of both Walker and Warnock will prevent that from happening. I'm not so sure about that personally. Well, I mean, uh, you would also be unsurprised to learn that people might not even know that there's a runoff in uh, two weeks. Or they might think it's in January again. They might not even know when it is. They might think their vote already counted. I mean, Georgia is very unique in the way that it conducts runoffs uh, compared to other states. But also, you know, Georgia is a state of contrast. With 159 different counties, you have some smaller, more rural elections offices that won't offer Saturday voting because... They don't have the staff, they don't have the resources, and they really don't have the voters that will take advantage of it. But then you have some of these larger, more metropolitan counties that do have the staff and do have the willingness and do have a vested interest in spreading out their hundreds of thousands of voters as much as they can on those days. So that's why you're seeing, like today, for example, only one county, I believe, has early voting. That's Douglas County, west of Atlanta. Uh, two counties have it tomorrow, nothing Thursday and Friday, and then it picks up from there. But what's really interesting to me is that, um, you know, you can't paint things with a broad brush. Not every county wants Saturday voting. Not every county can do Saturday voting. But with this option and with what the courts have ruled, there is that option available for those that want to do it. Uh, Tammy, one of the things that's important about the ruling is, um, and, and this picks up on what Stephen just said, is that uh, the counties that are doing Saturday voting, I think there are 11 of them right now. There may be more that will uh, add to that now that the uh, appeals court has ruled. But in the meantime, these are largely metro Atlanta counties where you would perhaps expect heavier Democratic turnout, which is, of course, one of the reasons that Walker, uh, that Warnock uh, wanted to get this Saturday uh, added, uh, not to mention the fact that Democrats tend to be the ones who turn out in early voting. Yeah, and I would also be interested to see, particularly in the four largest metro counties, which are the four largest counties in the state, to see if their participation is increased um, from um, the general election and even compare that to um, the, the, oh my gosh, it was just two years ago, right? The runoff election for the Senate race. Oh my gosh. Um, so it would be interesting to see what the turnout is going to be and, and to see if this effort was worth it, um, particularly in the four largest counties who um, all voted in the midterm election at less than 60%. So I'll be really interested to see if there's a, a dynamic push to increase that turnout. 
Uh, Anthony, uh, this is just yet another example of the fact that we are taking more and more of our election issues to the courts for resolution. And and that's a trend that uh, I think some people would find uh, disturbing because whether the courts want to be in the middle of this in a political way or not, uh, it's hard not to interpret some of what happens as political. I think the problem at, at, at bottom here is that the Secretary of State's office made a last-minute change in their, their assessment of the state of our law, and it was inconsistent with prior practice, and it seemed to be inconsistent with what the law actually demanded. So, so just to be clear, the law says that there should be no Saturday nice. voting right on a Saturday uh, a second Saturday if there's an election within uh, or if there's a state holiday on that Thursday or Friday. Um, but the way in which it's, dis- it's discussing that prohibition, it's within this discussion of a, of a three-week or so early voting period, which just is not possible given the condensed time frame of the runoffs now that we have moved it back to December. And so it just never made much sense. And on top of that, um, you know, Early voting, that the, the assumption was that early voting uh, on a Saturday would be permissible, and the Secretary of State's office you know, signaled this. So, you know, the, the courts are the ultimate arbiters of statutory interpretation, and that's what this basically is. Um, and the courts, I think, said what most election law scholars would say is true of election law generally, that one, we don't like last-minute changes in the interpretation of election law, because we think voters should have an expectation uh, of well ahead of time what the rules are and when they should be able to vote and and how they can vote. And the second thing is is that there's really no irreparable harm to the state by erring on the side of voters and construing statutes to benefit voters when there is ambiguity. And so I I think that that this whole controversy in some parts was manufactured and in some ways, it's just inconsistent with how we treat election law generally. So, you know, I'm not surprised the courts got involved, but the courts did what courts do, which is interpret uh, interpret laws and construct laws and, and make sense of them so that they're executed properly. Stephen, um, I, I want to uh, put this in the context of what we expect in terms of uh, turnout. We, I, we've said already that the Warn- it was the Warnock people who uh, challenged uh, the Secretary of State's interpretation of no uh, Saturday uh, early voting, um, and they did so because they think they can get their voters out to the polls. Uh, but when we crunch the data, or not me, but when a number of smarter people than I am crunch the data of turnout in the uh, 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 general election, um, it was uh, pretty surprising, I think, number one, that we had lower turnout in uh, this midterm than we did in 2018, after this surge of early voting, we all expected maybe it was going to set a new record. But specifically in terms of the Warnock campaign, um, uh, white turnout was slightly higher than 2018, whereas black turnout was lower. And that's something the Warnock people have got to be paying an awful lot of attention to moving in to the Saturday voting and all of the voting coming up. Well, I mean, there, there's a couple things we can say about voting data in Georgia. You know, we have what's known as the voter history file, which means that if you as a voter participated in election, you get credit for it. And there's these large files that can be downloaded. So we can look at people's voter history, not to see who they voted for, unless they pulled a Democratic or Republican primary ballot. 
but where and how they voted. And so what drove a lot of the early voting turnout in this general election was a lot of people that typically show up and vote on election day were then moving to vote early in person. Now, that means there would be fewer people voting on election day, but theoretically, both parties were planning for more people to show up and turn out on election day. Both Democrats and Republicans actually saw fewer people vote on election day. It's just that Democrats had way, way fewer than they needed. So instead of having a close one to two percent race where Republicans won by narrow margins, you had relative blowouts and everything but the Senate race because Democrats did not show up on Election Day. You know, only 30 percent of Raphael Warnock's votes came from Election Day. Most of the rest were by mail and early voting. And, you know, it, it is interesting. Uh, I would say that the Democrats would argue that they did not push for Saturday voting because it would help their voters. They would argue that it would push for everybody to show up and vote. And with the exception of the Senate race and every other statewide race, Republicans actually won more in-person early votes than Democrats, which is a trend that has long happened in Georgia. So in-person early voting actually advantages the Republicans. So adding more days, in theory, should help Republicans with this runoff. Well, that's interesting because I would think the Warnock people would hope that what you just said is incorrect. But I think I think that's interesting insight. Uh, tomorrow, let's move, let's talk about a new poll. As long as we're talking about the Senate race, that's just been released. It's actually the first poll of uh, Warnock and Walker as the runoff gets underway. It was commissioned by AARP, and one of the reasons I think it's 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 a significant poll is that it was done by a bipartisan team of uh, pollsters, Democrats and Republican pollsters. And let me just give you the, the, some of the top lines and then start, ha- ask you to start and everybody else can weigh in on this. Um, the poll showed that Warnock is at 51 percent, uh, Walker 47, which is just on the edges of the margin of error, which is 4.4 percent. So it's essentially uh, a tied race. Um, But the pollsters went on to say that what was interesting to them was the the, um, crosstabs. Warnock leads voters between the ages of 18 and 49 by 24 points. Walker has a nine-point edge among voters older than 50. And the poll indicates that 90 percent of those older voters are, quote, extremely motivated to vote. Some three quarters of voters younger than 50 say they share that intensity. So those are just a few of the findings. Why don't we start with those? And tomorrow, what do you make of uh, hearing that, those uh, that those data? I mean, there's a that's a great statistic for Herschel Walker, that 90 percent of older voters are extremely motivated. This election is about turning out your core supporters, getting them excited enough to come back out despite the Thanksgiving holiday, despite everyone being sick and tired of election stuff. And older voters tend to be the ones who are more likely to come out in these low turnout races. Young voters historically tend to come out for kind of presidential level contests. It's really hard to get them to come back out for runoffs, for primaries, for that sort of thing. So it's going to be on Senator Warnock to to really make sure that those people come back. It is encouraging news for Senator Warnock that he does lead among independent voters, 54 percent to 39. Um, 
obviously a, a big block of the electorate, some 30 percent. And historically in Georgia, they, they tend to lean Republican in many of these races. So if Warnock can keep those folks in the fold, that would be huge for them. Um, good news for, for Herschel Walker in that it seems that each of the candidates are winning their own party's voters, which, as we've talked about a lot on this show, Split ticket, the split ticket dynamic between Governor Kemp and Senator Warnock was what brought the senator into a runoff um, when none of the other Democrats survived this first round of voting. So um, Warnock has been leaning into that split ticket message. We're going to see him do more of that in, in the future, but definitely some interesting findings in this poll. Uh, Tammy, um, what are the other figures in there that it seems it could be helpful to Herschel Walker, could be an encouraging sign for him is that um, uh, the pollsters found that people were uh, uh, almost unanimous in saying they were going to vote for the party with which they identify. And that's crucial to Herschel Walker when we remember that he, he had 200,000-plus fewer votes than, uh, uh, the, than uh, Brian Kemp in the general election race. Now, so if Republicans really are coming back into the fold and voting for Herschel Walker— You've got to figure that's a good sign for him, I think. Not only that, I think, uh, Bill, that it's also interesting to note that while Warnock has this 18 to 49, um, it's seeming to be on lock. Um, To Tamar's point, um, when we look at the electorate overall, um, the 18 to 40-year-olds, you know, did not do so well, and, and that's being kind. Um, to to their per particular population inside of the state. And so I am very interested if the urgency of now is, is being impressed upon that particular age group um, within the state, um, that they literally um, have not only this election, but many election results in their hands because of their large population. And, and let's be clear that they are in in line with the 50 to 80 year olds in terms of the the number of votes. It's almost split 42, 42. So it, so um, the way that the results are and some of the policies that the 18 to 40 year olds are most concerned about. Um, literally, I think um, as this young generation, they have so much within their grasp to change of the outcome of not only this election, also to have influence on the policies. I am very curious as to the micro-targeting of the 18 to 40-year-olds that is going to take place in the next couple of weeks to hopefully get them to turn out larger than they did in the general election. Um, Anthony? Well, I think for me, the most, most interesting part of this poll is that we had a lot of conversations, I think, in the past few weeks of is Georgia, uh, is Georgia, you know, a pink state? Is it a purple state? Why isn't it a blue state? You know, there, there are a lot of liberals out there who have said, how is this race so close? Um, and, and, and so I think, you know, that people look at the, the, you know, top line results from the state constitutional officers and say, well, no, we're definitely a red state still. And this poll, I think, suggests to me that, that what we should all do as, um, you know, pundits is, is not just look at the immediate election, but think about the more structural changes that are happening in Georgia. I, I think it's fair to say from this poll that if you look at generational differences, if you look at some of the demographic changes and the demographic differences and splits in, in this poll, it is much more revealing about 
how Georgia will be a continuing purple state. And I think that those that, that, that the competition that will um, that'll that'll be present between both political parties will continue in future elections. And I think that no matter what happens with this election, this poll, uh, right, it's only one poll, it's one snapshot, it's one one piece of evidence. But if, if it's corroborated by um, by voting patterns and, and other additional polls, I think it's very telling about the future of Georgia politics as much as it is telling about the state of this particular election. Stephen, uh, your thoughts as you look over the data. I mean, it you know, it, it's cliche, but really it all comes down to turnout. I mean, you look at these different groups and you look at Georgia's historical voting patterns and there aren't very many surprises in the cross paths. I mean, the one thing I will say is that there was a side-by-side -side comparison of the general election poll that this group did and the uh, runoff election. And one thing that wasn't present in either poll is the sizable number of people that did not vote for Herschel Walker that voted for Republicans otherwise in the ticket that might not be present in that poll and in the makeup of a likely voter. And it, it will be one thing to see if these people that voted Kemp Warnock or Kemp Chase Oliver the Libertarian, uh, what they do in the runoff, whether they don't show up because they already participated in the general election or whether they show up again and how much that vote is a vote against Herschel Walker as much as it is a vote not for Herschel Walker. I mean, the, the Democrats had a press conference over the weekend where they had two Kemp Warnock voters talk about why they supported Brian Kemp and also why they supported Raphael Warnock. And the general sense among people that we've talked to leading up to this election and after this election is that there are a sizable number of those Kemp Warnock voters that are actively supporting Warnock and opposing Walker and not just casting a vote uh, otherwise just because they feel like it. So I do think a lot of those people will show up again in this election. So, Tamar, before we leave the poll, I want to mention one other uh, uh, data point that stood out for me. Um, it's not surprising, but, but I do want to speak about it for a minute. Um, looking at the uh, approval or positives and negatives of each candidate, uh, Warnock is viewed uh, with a positive uh, rating by 51% of the people who were polled. They gave him a favorable review uh, compared to 45 unfavorable. Walker had 45% favorable, 49% unfavorable. Now, here's the reason I mentioned that. Democrats, it packs the Warnock campaign, spent tens of millions of dollars to try to portray Herschel Walker as a as a violent uh, uh, a liar uh, who had threatened his former wife, who lied about his career. We know all the ways in which they tried to uh, tarnish his image. So it's fascinating to me, he shouldn't even be near 45% <laughs> uh, positive approval. It's, it's astonishing to me that uh, he has weathered all of that and still is uh, fairly close to Warnock in that regard. I mean, a, a couple thoughts on that. The first is that there are plenty of voters who might just hold their nose and vote for Walker, even if they don't love him uh, personally, because they believe in the policies that he supports. They, you know, care about uh, being pro-life. They care about um, economic issues, inflation. So they, they might be Republican voters no matter what. Also, 
yes, I mean, 45% might be low if you think that what Herschel Walker has done is, is reprehensible, but at the same time, uh, you know, Reverend Warnock is still here, whereas all these other Democrats failed to make it into runoff. They lost outright. And the fact that he made it into a runoff shows that that line of attack still worked, that he was able to peel away enough um, Walker supporters in order to still be here for a December 6th runoff. I, I think that's a really a very interesting way to interpret it uh, differently from the way I looked at it. Um, Anthony, before, again, we get off this subject uh, uh, completely, um, Stephen points out this is all about turnout. It's essentially what Tammy said as well. On a university campus, both of you, Tammy and you, uh, Anthony, on university campuses, um, it would be interesting to get a sense of what your students are thinking about with this runoff ahead. Is it completely they're off for, th- for Thanksgiving break? Are they voters or not voters, Anthony? Well, law students are never off, and they, they are definitely very engaged, and they have opinions, because I've never met a law student without an opinion. Uh, but I, I think what's interesting <laughs> is, you know, it, it's true, though, that, that, this, that this, you know, turnout is so crucial on the campuses. So it's no surprise to me that every time I, I log on to Twitter um, or on Instagram, I see, you know, a Warnock event at Georgia Tech, at Georgia State, at Emory, um, at UGA. And so there, there certainly is an understanding there, at least for, for Warnock folks, that, that turnout from campuses is, you know, crucial. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But I think, I think these voters are, you know, certainly engaged. And it's true that, that they may very well be uh, the deciding factor. That was true in Nevada, right, that, 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 that the Nevada race came out for Democrats just enough and if you had a little less participation by younger voters, that might not have gone Democrats' way. So that's certainly a message, it seems, that the Warnock campaign is taking here. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show. We've got a lot more to talk about when we come back on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. of quick notes before we get back to the panel. Uh, first is that um, Speaker of the House, David Ralston, is lying in state at the uh, state capitol all day today. The public has been invited to come pay their respects to him. And at 11 o'clock this morning, if you're listening to the show live, you still have a chance to hear this. And if, if not, I'm sure it'll be reported in our newscast later this afternoon. At 11 o'clock, uh, Governor Brian Kemp will be making remarks, which we are going to stream on GPB's uh, digital platforms. You'll be able to uh, watch it on our website at gpb.org. Uh, the other quick note is uh, that tomorrow's Political Rewind newsletter day, um, if you're not a subscriber, we'd love to have you join us. Just go to gpb.org newsletters, and you can start getting the newsletter in your inbox uh, every Wednesday. And so let me reintroduce the panel and keep talking. And Stephen Fowler, I'm going to start with you because although I said you are GPB News's political reporter, 
I did not mention you are also the host of a Battleground Ballot Box, your uh, podcast on politics in the state. What's you have a new one coming up? There will probably be one final one wrapping up the runoff, the sprint to the finish. Uh, I've got some reporting that just came out yesterday on NPR about Georgia elections officials actually feeling like things are almost back to normal and calm for them. So after the runoff finishes, we'll have certification, risk-limiting audits, runoff turnouts and rallies, and it'll be a nice big bow on this 2022 midterm season. Okay, terrific. That's Battleground Ballot Box. Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is uh, back with us. Tammy Greer, political science professor at Clark Atlanta University. And Anthony Michael Christ, professor of constitutional law at Georgia State University. Anthony, I'm going to start with you on this because you are our constitutional law professor. And I want you to help us uh, as we dig into this really remarkable decision ruling that came down late last week in which Fulton County Judge Robert McBurney, who I've called the hardest working man in show business these days, uh, ruled that the so-called heartbeat abortion law, one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country, is unconstitutional. And before we talk about some of the language he used, could you just start by telling us on what grounds he said it was unconstitutional? So the Georgia State Constitution is perhaps the most important document in the state of Georgia that most Georgians don't know much about. Um, and part of this abortion ruling or the entire part of the abortion ruling it was centered on this provision in Article One of the Georgia Constitution, which says that legislative acts that violate the Georgia Constitution or the United States States Constitution are void. And from this provision in the Constitution, there's a doctrine that's developed in Georgia constitutional law called void ab initio, which means that any law that's not enforceable at the time of its adoption, at the time of its enactment, is a nullity. So it can't be a zombie law that's later resurrected or amended to then be later enforced. It's dead on arrival. Um, and so part of the reason for this is that we want elected officials to be accountable, to know what they're voting for, to assume that the laws that they are, are trying to enact aren't symbolic, but actually um, will be enforced. And there's an idea that, that people should know what the law is going to be, and we want to respect precedent. Um, and so what Judge McBurney had said was that because this law passed in 2019 that banned abortion at six weeks, was unconstitutional as a matter of federal constitutional law under Roe versus Wade and a later decision, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, that this law was inoperative and 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 it's it, when it was passed, it was it was dead as a matter of constitutional law. And so, what Judge McBurney did not say is that there's a fundamental right to privacy that that abortion is protected under the state constitution, or that the General Assembly can't go back and and have another a second bite of the apple. Uh, in fact, what the General Assembly can now do is try to adopt a new abortion law that's more restrictive than the one that was in place before 2019, um, and that might come back for an additional constitutional challenge under a right to privacy uh, claim. But at the end of the day, this is this is about the the fact that the legislatures legislators in Georgia did not respect constitutional precedent, and they passed a law that they knew was unconstitutional, and that's not permitted under the Georgia State Constitution. 
Yeah, thank you for that. Tamara, so, uh, so Roe v. Wade was the law of the land uh, at, 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 at the time that the legislature acted. And McBurney said, because it was, this is now an, this is an illegal, uh, this is not a constitutional uh, uh, legal provision. But what's interesting, I think I'm right, Tamara, that states which in fact had trigger laws, which said we will either limit or outlaw abortion if the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, um, which some states have, they're in a different category. Those laws uh, are likely to pass constitutional muster, which I, I think is interesting. But the other thing that's interesting is that McBurney did not act as many of us thought he would, or, the, or, or in fact, the plaintiffs did not make their case around the privacy provision in the state constitution, which we thought was going to be their, their the most important argument they would make. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, obviously, this, this ruling has been appealed, and obviously, folks who support the heartbeat law are hoping that the, the Georgia Supreme Court will uphold it there. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to see, especially if the Supreme Court upholds what McBurney ruled. What comes next? McBurney left the door open. Well, the legislature can just come in and pass what they want, especially in the wake of this Dobbs decision that toppled Roe versus Wade. What's going to happen now in a legislature that's even more closely divided than what it was in 2019 when this law ended up passing? And and for now, leaders in the legislature say they want to wait, they want to watch this court challenge playoff. But what is even able to pass muster in today's Republican controlled legislature. It's going to be very different than what it was in 2019. Speaker Ralston won't be there. Um, Governor Kemp is in his second term. Again, narrowly, even more narrowly divided chambers. Yeah, Tammy, uh, uh, McBurney's throwing it back to the legislature. And again, we want to say the state Supreme Court has the case before it now. They may overturn what McBurney did. But if it goes back to the legislature next session, Tammy, and then Stephen, I'd like to get you in on this. Um, it's going to be a huge battle all over again. We have to remember that the original uh, bill passed by one vote uh, in the House. And and so they're really putting legislators back on the spot. Right. Um, so first, to start off, as I usually do on this subject, um, I find it fascinating the amount of fascination it is with women's bodies. Um, but as to your question, though, Bill, um, I think it's very interesting to see what would be the response of the legislature when it comes to uh, now this is real. Um, so it's easy to to have such um, ambitious and um, interesting laws about other people um, when you don't think that it could actually happen. And so now that it could actually happen, um, and then with the way that districts are redrawn with um, the uh, appearance of um, centering the politics and the electorate here in Georgia, um, will the legislature actually go through with it? Um, what would be the impact of that? Um, how will the uh, how will the governor react to it now that you know he's term limited? It will be very interesting to see what the legislature does. And um, on a finer point, I hope that this case in particular um, elevates the understanding of the importance of your state legislature. 
um, to all that are listening and all who can teach someone what they're listening to today. The state legislature has um, an, an increase in everyday impact on our lives. Um, and I think that we should really pay attention to state and local politics uh, more so than we do federal politics because the impact that we feel is state and local, not necessarily always from the federal government. Uh, thank you for that. Stephen? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, because there's new leadership in the House and the Senate, uh, what sort of things get proposed. It's the start of a new biennial session, which means we start from a blank slate. The first bill that will be filed will be House Bill 1 and Senate Bill 1. And a lot of things that come out in the first year of the two-year legislative session are a lot of attention-grabbing things that either never get committee hearings, never get traction, end up getting gutted and things like that. And with the state Senate, with a new lieutenant governor, a new Republican leadership there, it's a little bit more uh, to the right than the state house is, where there's uh, more closely divided uh, uh, membership there and a lot more people and a lot more different uh, interests being represented by the 180 members there. So I would expect to see more uh, attention-grabbing things from the Senate than you'll find from the House. But what is interesting also to note about the judge's ruling in Fulton County is that it didn't touch the fetal personhood language, uh, which yes. is basically you can claim a you know fetus as a dependent on your taxes. And uh, the fetal personhood language is another avenue of legal challenge that both supporters of the abortion legislation and opponents are pursuing. And originally, that fetal personhood language was originally thought to be the vehicle to get larger abortion restrictions in front of the Supreme Court. So I would expect to see that uh, also addressed at some point in the legislature this year, especially if everything else holds and the abortion ban is back to uh, the pre-HB 481 standing. All right. Anthony, I want to dig in a little bit to McBurney's opinion, because what we've learned about him, particularly in the last year with all the high profile cases uh, that he's had, uh, is he writes fascinating and sometimes blistering opinions. So I want to ask you about this. Let me start by saying the state had a very interesting argument about why McBurney should allow the law to uh, stand. They argued that there was never a federal federal constitutional right to abortion because Roe and Casey were both always wrong. <laughs> that that therefore, since those were never correct, uh, that that the, the the law should stand. First of all, that's a straight. It's a, it's a really strange argument uh, to make. Well, in many respects, it harkens back to another case uh, in 2003 at the Supreme Court where Justice Kennedy said that anti-sodomy laws were never constitutional, notwithstanding a 1986 case from Georgia where the United States Supreme Court said, yes, you could, in fact, criminalize same-sex intimacy. Um, it, it's, it's this argument that I think people try to make in an attempt to say that the Constitution has an objective meaning that's always been true. Um, at, which, is, which is really not how American constitutionalism works. American constitutionalism works as a dialogue between courts and legislatures and social movements and political parties and coalition building. Um, and it changes in, 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 over time. It's, it's rather fluid. And so the argument that, um, you know, that, that, that the Constitution never protected 
uh, abortion is just not right as a practical matter, right? We had almost 50 years of precedent that said that there was a fundamental right to an, to an abortion, uh, abortion care. So I, I, I think it's really a matter of semantics. What Judge McBurney said was we really should move past the, the constitutional theory and move past the semantic arguments and, and realize that there was precedent that Georgia was bound to respect. And, and that's the law that, of the land and that's the law that governed us. And so, you know, we, we just have to deal with the reality of what the, the law was on the ground and not play with this kind of abstract theory um, and, and, you know, really understand that when Georgia legislators, legislators passed that law in 2019, it was never going to be in effect unless Roe was overturned. Okay, so that's what I want to get now before we have to get to a break tomorrow to uh, the foot, what, at least one of the footnotes. You pointed out before the show went on the air that you and your colleague Bill Rankin, when this issue, this uh, uh, ruling was issued, you were amazed at how closely you were paying attention to the footnotes that McBurney wrote. And here's just one of the things he said. The Dobbs majority is not somehow, quote, more correct than the majority that birthed Roe or Casey, despite its frothy language disparaging the views espoused by previous justices. The magic of Dobbs is not its special insight into historical facts or its monopoly on constitutional hermeneutics. It is simply numbers. More justices today believe the United States Constitution does not protect a woman's right to choose what to do with her body than did in the same institution 50 years ago. Um, And he essentially said this was a matter of math, not somehow mystical thinking. That's a pretty blistering attack, essentially on the conservative Supreme Court that overturned Roe. Yeah, I think McBurney put on his sassy pants when he was writing that uh, that opinion because certainly, yeah, my, my colleague and I were, were sending the footnotes back and forth because I think people so, t- sometimes tend to think that these trial-level judges um, tend to want to just uphold the status quo, but that certainly was not true with this ruling. Uh, I've been spending some time in McBurney's courtroom. He's, of course, the judge overseeing the special grand jury, and you know his opinions are always cleverly thought out and crisp and engaging. Um, And so it's been interesting to see the way that he's handled this abortion ruling. And just a little shout out. um, I hate doing plugs, but I have a podcast on the um, on the special grand jury that my colleague Bill and I do. Anthony has been on it before. And today's episode has it has an interview with Judge McBurney on it. So, oh, my um, God, you can learn. I did not know philosophy. You should not hesitate to promote uh, your podcast. I, I'm glad that you did. Thank you for uh, telling us all about it. Let's do this. Let's get our – oh, one quick thing. Again, the state Supreme Court now has this case. Uh, we'll wait to see what they do. Very quickly, Anthony, because I do have to get to a break. If you were a betting person, would you want to imagine they would wait till after the runoff election to issue any kind of ruling on this? Probably so. Um, I, I would not want to be in their position uh, because not only do they have a runoff to consider, but they probably don't want to upend the legislative session either. So it, it's going to be a delicate balance and, and a balancing of equities. And um, it's really anyone guess what the Georgia Supreme Court will do at this point. In the meantime, abortion providers are once again offering services to women who believe they need to take advantage of them. Let's take our final break. We'll be back with more on Political Rewind.
Mar Hellerman, as we said at the start of the show, uh, Lindsey Graham is appearing before Fannie Willis' special grand jury uh, today. Um, he's fought it uh, as hard as he possibly could, finally exhausted all of his appeals. Let me ask you a quick question about him. Uh, he goes in not knowing what Brad Raffensperger uh, or anyone else in the state who has been called to testify, what they may have said about what Lindsey Graham said to them, to the Secretary of State particularly, in the phone calls that we know he made, which means he's got to be kind of careful, doesn't he, about how he answers questions in terms of whether he did in any way suggest that maybe the Secretary of State ought to take a special look at absentee ballots, consider whether they're in fact legal or not. I would think that puts him in a somewhat vulnerable position. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, yes and no. We So we don't know exactly what Brad Raffensperger told the special grand jury when he went in on June 1st, but he spoke extensively about his phone call with Senator Graham to the press after it happened. So we have those remarks publicly. We have what the DA's office has, which was written as part of his out-of-state witness subpoena, uh, which in their eyes, they, they believe that Graham suggested, quote, re-examining certain absentee ballots cast in Georgia in order to explore the possibility of a more favorable outcome for former President Donald Trump. So we have that interpretation as well that might guide kind of how we think they're going to be asking questions. But of course, Senator Graham has to be careful because if he does assert his Fifth Amendment rights um, to avoid um, self-incrimination, um, you know, that could come out. That could look bad for him politically. Say he does answer a question, but he does it in a way that arouses the suspicion of Fulton prosecutors. That could turn him from a witness into a target very quickly. So he has to be extremely careful about how he answers questions in all of this. And of course, there are plenty of outside legal experts we talked to who look very suspect at the fact that Senator Graham called Brad Raffensperger a couple weeks before Donald Trump did. And those, those phone calls kind of dovetailing into one another. So plenty of people are looking at him suspiciously. Um, the senator have, has, of course, maintained this entire time that he's done nothing wrong, that all he was doing was legislative fact-finding. He talks about how he had the, the vote coming up on whether to certify the Electoral College results. They talk about uh, a bill he ended up co-sponsoring later that had to do with reforming the Electoral Count Act. So they say all of that kind of fed into that. Um, and he suggested that he is not going to shy away from fighting back on questions that he thinks run aground of legislative privilege. Um, this federal judge, Lee Martin May, who heard his challenge earlier in this cycle, mentioned that she would, she would make herself kind of available to be on call if there were issues that were to come up in the grand jury room. And if I had to bet, I bet there are going to be many questions that he's going yeah. to fight back on. So uh, one of the other things we'll say very quickly, tomorrow is that Fannie Willis has really ramped things up again now that the election is over. She said she'd slow things down in the weeks before the election. Now she's going full speed ahead. Although, as you point out in an article the other day, um, Mark Meadows uh, and Michael Flynn and Newt Gingrich are all continuing to fight their summons to appear before the special grand jury, which to Mark could really lengthen the timeline uh, that she wanted to establish to uh, uh, finish up the work of the special grand jury. Yeah, she's talked about wanting to finish up their work by the end of the year. And interestingly enough, one of her deputies at a hearing last week mentioned that he doesn't anticipate the grand jury to go on much longer. He said there were not a ton of witnesses left. But 
One question we don't have an answer on at this point and something that could very much affect her timeline is whether the DA decides that she wants to subpoena Donald Trump and bring him in. Um, he will likely fight that, and that could very much extend the timeline. I think another approach that some legal experts have mentioned to me is she could ask him to voluntarily come in, and then you don't have to yeah. worry about getting into this giant legal fight. But she has a major decision to make on the horizon. Stephen, with the few minutes we have left, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's account on Twitter, her personal account, has been restored by Elon Musk. Just another one of the things he's done since taking over that are endearing him (laughs) to uh, the American people. And what's interesting about this to me, Stephen, is it it pairs with the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think, has very cannily decided to throw her lot in with Kevin McCarthy as he fights to be the next Speaker of the House, which means should he win, and and we imagine he probably will, uh, she's going to have free reign to continue essentially with the kind of uh, rhetoric, with the kind of uh, behavior that she's shown uh, in the two years that she's been in the House. Yeah, look, I mean, when you're a party in control of a chamber, you want to have as wide a margin as possible so that you can have a reliable coalition that doesn't involve the people that might be on the fringes of your party. You know, when Democrats were in control of the House, it was a narrow margin, which meant at times they had to contend with the Blue Dog Democrats holding up the infrastructure bill or with the progressive squad on legislation and things like that. And now Republicans are going to have to deal with this in the same way. You know, uh, part of the majority is more moderate Republicans from blue states like New York and other places that have indicated they want to focus on governing and not impeaching uh, cabinet secretaries or investigating Hunter Biden. But uh, their numbers are roughly the same as the numbers of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who have indicated they maybe want to burn the government down, uh, metaphorically speaking. Um, so it's going to be an interesting, delicate balance to see with the, uh, with the Republicans having the shoe on the other foot now of having to really make sure they court everybody in their caucus to be able to get things across the finish line. And that's what Marjorie Taylor Greene is indicating uh, she's going to do. Anthony, you can't help but wonder if Kevin McCarthy is at some point, if he's elected in oh, March or April, say, uh, why wasn't I paying more attention to John Boehner <laughs> when he was speaker? Well, you know, what, what, what's, what's historically been true is that House procedures, House rules, House customs have changed a lot when you get very narrow, uh, very narrow majorities. And I think we're in a great transition period in American politics. Um, so it's really anybody's guess what will happen. But it's certainly I, I think what we can say for sure, it's going to be a wild couple of years until 2024. Tammy, Adam Kinzinger, the Republican who served on the January 6th committee, who's not running for reelection, who's been an anti-Trumper, uh, said uh, essentially he gives Kevin McCarthy a matter of months <laughs> to keep the speakership uh, before he realizes he can't control him. And the Marjorie Taylor Greene wing of the party uh, uh, forces him out. So, uh, number one, um, I always say to my class, the, the press conference that John Boehner came out when he sang, you know, zippity doo zippity a my, my, what a wonderful day before he quit, um, because it was just too much to work with. I think it's important for us to understand, particularly those that vote for those folks, that this is what happens when um, we don't take governing seriously. 
All right, uh, Tammy Greer gets the last word on today's Political Rewind as we run out of time. Uh, Tammy, Stephen Fowler, Anthony Michael Kreese, and Kreis, uh, and uh, Tamar Hallerman, thank you so much for being with us. You are, as I've said on uh, my shows with Thanksgiving coming up, I'm so grateful and thankful that I get to listen to smart people talking about politics. You reminded me of that today. So take care and have a happy Thanksgiving to all of you. We're back with a final Thanksgiving show tomorrow, Wednesday. Then we take Thursday and Friday off. So join us for tomorrow's show. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and if you're not back tomorrow, have a happy Thanksgiving.